welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call? Hi, I'm Susan Woodward. We hope you're enjoying our first season and its focus on the Southern Resident Orca. We're excited to bring you today's conversation on the river with the renowned scientist Ken Balcom, who began his orca survey in April 45 years ago. We've dubbed him Podfather. Happy anniversary, Ken. Back in the days, the highway went right through here from Port Angeles to Nia Bay. Wow. And, uh, of course, it was, you know, that was 1910. Uh, you don't have a lot of traffic then and probably a lot of horse and buggy, but uh, uh, this was the road. So it was nicely prepared to be a trail for us now. The Elwha Squalum tribe lived here. I mean, this was their hunting area. This was a lot of the country that they lived on. Uh, the old post office was right down around the corner here. Oh, wow. It's gone now, but it was a cedar stump that had a thatch roof and then uh, little slots in the bark inside for people to put their mail. So we own both sides of the river from about that corner over there where the rocks start down to that corner down there where the, the river makes a bend. And of course it turns and comes against this so it's slowly washing out the soil on this side. And that's good because what it does is it exposes more pebbles and nesting habitat for the salmon in the future. I'm standing with marine mammal scientist Ken Balcom on the edge of the Elwha River in the Elwha Valley in the northwest corner of Washington State. It's February. Above, the mountains of Olympic National Park are covered in snow. In years past, we'd be standing in a foot of the stuff too. Instead, it feels like a warm, sunny morning in California. The Elwha runs by patiently, endlessly, as it always has. Well, except for that 100 years when it was blocked by two dams. In a few miles, her waters will empty into the Strait of Juan de Fuca, where the southern resident orca compete with fishermen and shipping vessels for food and safe passage. I think this part of the river did not have major damage because it wasn't in the lake area, uh, but it didn't have the fish that brought the nutrients to the forest, you know, and to the animals that live in the forest. So that part is, is going to return, but it may take as long as it takes for the fish to return, 30 years, 
maybe, I don't know. But the idea is uh, it shall return. Nature is very resilient if you give it a chance. No other human knows the southern residents, or JK and L pods, as intimately as Ken. He has studied them in their natural Salish Sea habitat for the past 45 years. He can recognize each individual orca on site, knows their names and vocalizations, when they give birth, and when and how they die. Now 80 years old, Ken is sometimes referred to as the orca's human father and grandfather. Indeed, we only know the population of JK and L pods has been reduced to just 75 individual animals because of Ken's dedication, a lifetime of work that is simply referred to as Orca Survey. To be more precise, I'm standing with Ken on the edge of the Elwa as it runs through 45 acres of land he very recently acquired. He's named this property the Big Salmon Ranch, and it's destined to become a tangible part of his legacy. Well, I'm hoping uh, that during this next 50, 100 years, that this will be a place that people come to for high-level education, like bureaucrats, governors, politicians, that really want to learn the importance of an ecosystem and an example of restoration. It's happening, it's just that what it has to be is one of those things that attract a large segment of our society to want to do, restore, make it good again. There are plenty of river systems that just have a few little problems, most of them political and economic, and if we can just steer the economics toward a restoration, that's really much less expensive to do than the destruction and the loss of the world, really. What Ken wants to protect most along the Elwa are the spawning grounds of Chinook salmon. Also known as king salmon, these fish are the primary oily food source of the southern resident orca. But the salmon have been in sharp decline for years, leaving the southern residents malnourished and leading to their classification as endangered under the US Endangered Species Act since 2005. The southern residents are the only endangered orca in North American waters. Every salmon spawning ground counts, Ken reasons. If he can personally protect even this 45 acres of land and river, it could mean the difference between life and starvation for a part of his beloved southern residents. They're the ones in the limelight right now, and they deserve it. I mean, they, they're, they're our icons of health in the Northwest. Cross my fingers, J-Pod is at least reproducing. K isn't. L doesn't have a chance. So uh, there we go, you know, we're, we're gonna, this investment is for J-Pod. And they're the most resident, the ones that come in here more. So it's their fish. And then what the future has to do is uh, manage fisheries and human activities such that 
those fish are available first come first serve to the whales. I understand that fishermen have families and payments and stuff like that, and, um, but this one's for the whales. Each southern resident orca requires 18 to 25 adult salmon a day to live. That's about half a million salmon a year for everyone in JK and L pods. The problem is salmon, too, are on the brink of extinction. The situation is dire and has everything to do with dams. Up and down the west coast of North America, our forefathers tamed a river after mighty river with concrete barriers. This engineering genius of a bygone era has had disastrous consequences for salmon runs and whole river ecosystems. Too many and too much to fully cover in this podcast, except to say that up and down the west coast today, community after community is demanding the dams be taken down. There used to be one and a half to two million Chinook salmon coming through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And uh, that was when it was, the whales were doing okay. They, were, they could build up their population in that kind of a environment. But uh, when you're looking at all the Puget Sound runs of Chinook being endangered, and you know, maybe a total of 45, 50,000, 70,000 fish some years, uh, that's nothing compared to what used to come by. In the Pacific Northwest, calls to breach the four dams on the lower Snake River as the most surefire way to bring back the salmon and feed the southern residents are reaching fever pitch. The snake runs through three western states before hitting the dams in eastern Washington. Once upon a time, it was the most prolific salmon-producing river in the Columbia River Basin. Now it's considered the most endangered river in the United States. In addition to the negative environmental impact, groups including American Rivers and Dam Sense argue that the aging dams are costly to maintain and have outlived their usefulness. They see a window of opportunity and are pressing for executive action from the Biden administration to breach the dams immediately. The largest dam removal in US history has already occurred. It was arduous and controversial, and it was on the Elwha, the first of two dam walls just a couple of miles from where Ken and I now stand. The breach took three years, the final construction pieces were removed, and the Elwha ran freely to the sea again in the summer of 2014. Ken says the positive impact on the surrounding ecosystem is already undeniable. There was a four or five miles of river below the dam that the fish came to and then they'd come right up to the dam and bounce their nose off the concrete and then spawn somewhere in the river if they could survive. Anyway, once the dam was gone, that obstruction was gone and they came up to here. I mean, they were just boom, right there. The uh, ultimate goal is there'll be uh, 30,000 spawners returning to the Elwha annually, you know, as an average, it goes up and down. Uh, right now it's about 7,000 and it's up from zero. It was amazing how quickly they came back. The Elwha salmon returns give Ken a glimmer of hope. 
while dam battles rage and bureaucratic commissions into wildlife and ecosystem restoration come and go, the southern residents he cares about grow ever more hungry. Preserving the Big Salmon Ranch is a more immediate action, an opportunity he has seized upon to protect a small but vital piece of habitat in perpetuity. Maybe it will even encourage others to do the same. We must restore ecosystems and this one is on its way. We're just here to celebrate that and I look at it as an investment by JPOD or the Southern Residents in their food for the future. And this is simple. I mean, there was property for sale around here. Uh, there's property for sale in lots of the ecosystems that need rehabilitation. So why don't people buy it on behalf of the systems they want to restore? Before Ken, there was Dr. Mike Big. Big was a Canadian marine biologist who devoted much of his spare time to observing orca off Vancouver Island in the 1970s. He pioneered the method of photographing the orca's dorsal fins on the hunch the photos could be used to identify individual animals. Big's method proved correct. The shape and markings of every fin and the saddle patch below are indeed unique throughout an orca's lifetime. In this way, he was able to rather quickly identify and count all the southern resident, northern resident, and transient orca populations in the Salish Sea. He assigned each pod a letter, and each individual within it a number. Mike Big, who initiated this entire study, started at the north end of Vancouver Island, and the first pod that he photographed, called A pod, and A1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on, within that group, and then the next day or sometime later, a different group, B-Pod, the south end of Vancouver Island, it was J, K, and L. And then there was M, N, O, P, Q. But they were all transients because he had pretty well cleaned up everybody that was resident in terms of photo identification of everybody. And it was just the little groups that, oh, popped in and, hmm, well, this is a new bunch. It's going to be uh, uh, O, you know, and they're five of them okay. or something like that and so that was pretty easy but it turns out after a few years that hmm those are really different creatures those are what we now call transients or big transient whales. The heyday of orca research in the Pacific Northwest had begun but this was also the era of unconscionable orca captures driven by a global demand for the animal's use as human entertainment in marine parks. In 1976, the U.S. National Marine Fisheries Service wanted to understand if these captures were sustainable, so it hired Ken to survey the population of orcas off the Washington coast. Using the photographic ID techniques he had learned from Dr. Big, Ken ascertained just 68 southern residents remained, a much smaller, more vulnerable population than the capture and marine entertainment industries liked to portray, and a population, it could now be proven, that these industries had decimated, as they had taken or killed more than 50 orca over the preceding 20 years. The public was outraged. So, too, were state politicians at the highest levels. The Washington orca captures were permanently shut down within months of Ken's findings. By then, 
Ken was enchanted by the southern residents and their struggle to survive. He founded the Centre for Whale Research and continued the Orca Survey with private support. An interesting aside, although often referred to as killer whales, orca, with their trademark black and white skin, are actually the largest species in the dolphin family. An adult male is typically 6 to 8 metres long and weighs about 5 metric tons. Females are somewhat smaller. As a young biologist, Ken quickly learned that killer whales are so much more than the fierce apex predators that earned them their name. The southern resident pods are tightly knit extended families, led by the oldest female. They consist of subpods of mothers and their offspring who stay together for life. The pods travel an average 75 miles a day. Orca are always on the move, following salmon, navigating and hunting by echolocation. The southern residents' travel patterns are changing in response to the food shortages in the Salish Sea. Orca communicate with calls, clicks and whistles. Some calls are common between the three pods, but JK and L pods also have their own unique dialects. Each pod tends to make its own way and mind its own business. Until early summer, when J, K and L pods are known to convene in the Salish Sea, interacting together in what is known as a superpod. In addition to his or her alphanumerical identification, each southern resident has been given a name. For example, J2 was known as Granny. Granny was about 105 years old when she died in 2016. She was the oldest southern resident ever observed. When Dr. Big died from leukaemia back in 1990, the next baby born to the southern residents was a male, J26. The moment the young orca rolled over at the surface of the sea and revealed his gender, Ken named him Mike. Other southern residents have entered the public consciousness, and not necessarily for happy reasons. Of course, in 2018, there was Tahlequah, the orca who made international headlines when she kept afloat the body of her emaciated newborn calf for 17 days. Scarlet, J50, was a juvenile orca who died a month later from starvation. When Scarlet could no longer keep up with her pod, Observers remember seeing her mother swim away for a while. They assumed to be with her child as she passed away. There are many stories like this. Too many. Ken documents them all.
When Ken talks about the failed pregnancies, less than one in three southern resident calves survive these days, I think about the grief these sophisticated marine mammals must feel, and I wonder if they are aware of their desperate circumstances. Tahlequah's tour of grief inspired a flood of global love and attention on the southern residents and their plight. The same year, the state of Washington established a task force to look into what could be done. Ken was one of the participants. Of everyone involved, he was best positioned to speak on behalf of Washington's orcas, but the experience and the task force's recommendations two years later did not impress him. I was very disappointed with the governor's task force and being basically stacked up against stakeholders that own ranches or electricity, I don't know, 60-some-odd other people. Most of them had zero knowledge of the orca. Actually, frankly, most of them were sort of wrapped up in their thing and not interested in the solution. The governor himself would not talk with us personally. It was sort of like, well, that's one of those fringe groups. Well, the whales are not the fringe group. They were the subject of the, of the meeting. So why treat them like a fringe group? I could personally feel bad about it, but uh, it's the whales that suffered by not having adequate voice at that. It was a stacked deck. There was 10 other voices for their side. So I'm, I won't let them off on trying to say it was a noble venture. It was a process that grinds you down. And a process that didn't address the orcas' most urgent need. And then the legislatures pass laws that dictate to the agencies exactly what they wanted to hear, you know. And one of the things they're enhancing their budgets for is enforcement to keep people away from the whales. And that was not the issue. The, the issue is their food supply. So it's sort of like, wow, we use all that horsepower to accomplish nothing. It's not going to save the whales. February 3, the same day I'm interviewing Ken on the Elwha, Outside Magazine publishes a beautifully written biography about this grisly 80-year-old a giant in the world of whale science. The piece narrates seamlessly between Ken's life and the lives of the southern residents. It's hard to tell if the writing is a portrait of him or the whales. Really, it's both. They have become inseparable. It's in this article that I learn of the loss that gets to Ken most. L112, or Souk, was just three when she washed ashore nine years ago. A necropsy concluded she was killed by blunt force trauma to her head and neck. The timing of her death coincided with Canadian naval exercises off Vancouver Island, exercises that included sonar and underwater explosives. Ken is certain Souk was in the area at the time and that it was the naval detonations that impacted her brain. When Souk died, the southern residents numbered 85, as a rare, young and vibrant female, she was very important to their odds of rebounding. 
Ken had observed her since she was six weeks old and was especially struck by the strong bond between Sook and her mother, L86, also known as Surprise. As a scientist, Ken rarely indulges in sentiment. However, in his contrary written responses to the final government report on Sook's death, he wrote, These comments are dedicated to L86 and L112, the most overtly affectionate mother-offspring pair of whales that I have ever seen. Rest in peace, L112. We miss you. Reading his words and looking at the photos of Sook's bloodied body on the beach, I feel hot tears falling. What damage and betrayal we humans inflict on our sentient animal kin. How does Ken bear what he's borne witness to, the steady decline of the southern resident tribes right before his eyes, an apparent slow spiral into extinction? I've always loved animals. I mean, they're fascinating to me. And uh, if my actions are making their life impossible, then I have to withdraw myself as much as I can so that I can, at a distance, appreciate their lives. And that's uh, maybe what our society now has come to, is that uh, we have to lessen that impact. Two weeks later, local news is awash with word that Sook's now 30-year-old mother, Surprise, has given birth to her fourth L-pod calf. Wonderful, Ken writes in an email to me. I hope it is female and survives to maturity. At the time of publishing, little L125's gender has yet to be confirmed. Meanwhile, with summer approaching, Ken and the Centre for Whale Research team are enjoying frequent encounters with returning southern residents. They are continuing the original orca survey to this day. Boats always at the ready in Port Angeles, San Juan Island and Victoria, British Columbia. And Ken is finding solace and unfolding his vision for the Big Salmon Ranch. When I joined the Navy in the Vietnam conflict, uh, they had the wisdom to send me up here. And that took, I said, wow, trees, ocean. This is, this is way cool. And uh, I'm just happy to be able to be here. If we don't take care of the Earth, I mean, we're not going to get to Mars in time to go live there, make it all habitable for us, and why didn't we do that here? Here we are, let's hold it, embrace it, love it, take care of it, and just live in it. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwain. Original cover art by Vonda Whitley. Photographed by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, To the Great Beyond by Stellar Drone. For lots of great stories about the individuals in the Southern Resident Pods, as well as information on how to help them, please visit Center for Whale Research at whaleresearch.com. Their incredible photos and videos are well worth a visit. In North America, you can view orca in the wild up and down the West Coast, especially around the San Juan and Gulf Islands in the summertime. Viewing tips at thewhaletrail.org. You can read the article about Ken, Is It Too Late for the Southern Resident Orcas? at outsideonline.com. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sentient Planet. We'll be publishing a related bonus episode later in the season. It's an in-depth studio interview with Ken Balcom. Okay, it's actually an interview Susan did with Ken over Zoom, but it's really good. Thanks for listening, and love to all beings, great and small.